Well, a woman named Patty O'Reilly had no idea that her world was going to turn upside down when her husband went out for a bike ride in Northern California and was hit and killed, maybe on purpose, by a drunk and angry man in a pickup truck named Mike Albertson. And Mike Albertson went to Folsom Prison for what he'd done, but still, it's hard to imagine how any of us would feel about such a man nonetheless. Patty admits that she felt only rage and loathing and was too racked with grief to even consider anything else. But God started working on her heart, mainly through her little daughter, who started asking questions about the man who'd killed her daddy. And that little daughter, Siobhan, finally got Patty's permission to write Mike Albertson letters in prison, decorated with hearts and smiley faces and whatnot. Like the one that read, uh, Dear Mr. Albertson, today is the 16th of August and I will be 10 years old on September 1st. I just want to make sure you know that I forgive you. I do still miss my dad. I think that's a lifelong thing. I hope you're feeling okay. Bye-bye, Siobhan. <sighs> so Patty volunteered for a program through the prison system that aims at restorative justice. And she went to that prison with her sister and a mediator and a bracelet and card from her little daughter, of course, and she sat down at a table across from Mike Albertson and looked him in the eye and got to hear the truth about what happened that day and why. And Mike got to see the flesh and blood devastation that he'd caused, and he got to take responsibility for it. So Patty decided to put forgiveness into action and to stop letting her grief and her anger control her. And our King David and his son Absalom really needed some restorative justice in their radical conflict too, didn't they? But emotions festered instead. And when we give our emotions too much authority, they can poison our relationships and our decision-making too. So our chapter this week finds the, the gaping physical, emotional, and spiritual wounds caused by both Absalom and David's personal sin festering. So let's take a look at the beginning of our chapter. We're in chapter 14. So chapter 14 begins three years later after where we left off a couple weeks ago in chapter 13. So three years ago, David murdered his brother, his brother and ran away and fled the country. So now we're three years down the line with verse one. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, and also David's nephew and David's commander of his army, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. So David's spirit continued in turmoil over his son Absalom year after year after year. And Joab sent to Tekoa, not in Jerusalem, maybe 10, year, 10 miles to the south 
of Jerusalem and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, pretend to be a mourner, go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. So this woman's hired to put on a show, to play a widow whose son killed his own brother in a fight in a field. And her kinsmen are now supposedly calling for the blood, the death of her only remaining murderer son in return. And David decides to commit royal protection to that woman and to her fictitious son, invoking, calling on the name of the Lord to seal the deal and make it irrevocable. And that's in verse 11. As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. And that's kind of the, the woman's signal to proceed with phase two of Joab's plan. When David commits to protecting that son, the woman calls him out for not extending the same mercy to his own son, the exiled, now second oldest, but still heir apparent to Israel's throne, Absalom. Well, David smells the rat Joab behind all this and calls the woman out on it. And she honestly admits the truth in verse 19. As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that the lord, my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant in order to change the course of things, to end the three-year impasse in which David's basically taken no action in the case of Absalom. Your servant Joab did this, but my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. And then the scene suddenly shifts or cuts to David confronting Joab all of a sudden. Some scholars say maybe he was, you know, just hiding right around the corner. We don't know if he was there or not. So verse 21, the king said to Joab, behold now, I grant this, go, bring back the young man, Absalom. And Joab probably said, whew, right? And arose and went to Gesher and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. But then the king said, verse 24, let Absalom dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in Jerusalem, but in his own house, not in the palace, not as part of the royal household, and did not come into the king's presence for two more years after returning home to the country. Well, David favored his good-looking and charismatic son, Absalom, and pretty much the whole nation of Israel favored Absalom too. He had the popularity of a princess die or something. David catered to Absalom, just as we saw a couple weeks ago that he had catered to Amnon. Verses 25 through 27 show us that Absalom was actually ridiculously good-looking. He was the darling of his father's people, and he knew it. Let's look at those verses, 25 through 27. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance 
as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. That could have been as heavy as five plus pounds of hair. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She too was a beautiful woman. So Absalom was a pretty boy and he worked it. He let his Fabio mane grow until he couldn't deal with it anymore. And then he had it weighed when he cut it to show it off, to impress other people, to draw a crowd. The author kind of makes a funny point about that. When we get to chapter 18, in a few weeks, we'll see those gorgeous locks that he prided himself in so much are maybe the halter and the noose that snag him and trap him and eventually get him killed down the line. So all this focus on Absalom's style and attractiveness prepares us, prepares the reader ironically for what's coming in his character. Just as I'm sure we're all prepared if we read 1 Samuel last year, right? If we studied that together, that the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So Absalom was beautiful, popular, sexy. He was in a class apart from the regular Joseph. He was the son of a devout father, given the education of a prince, but nothing was ever recorded about his own wisdom or his own devotion to God. An old commentary said, in his body, there was no blemish, but in his mind, nothing but wounds and bruises. He was polluted with the blood of his own brother and deformed with hatred for his own father and his king. His look served him well politically and in his personal life, just as David's had served him. But handsome is as handsome does. Right, ladies? Amen to that. But are we ever captivated by the shininess of people? I hope we're not impressed with celebrity culture, but even in our everyday relationships, do we let people's sparkly looks or personality or possessions or lifestyle attract us instead of what impresses God? It's scary to think about the temptation to let a child or a grandchild get away with more, cut them more slack maybe, even protect them from the consequences of justice because, well, he's such a cutie or she's so pretty and sweet or just because we feel sometimes like they're all we've got attractive or not, it's tempting to indulge our kids' interests over and above their spiritual training when they're still in our homes and to look the other way when they're older from their sin because we fear them or we fear losing them or because it's frankly easier that way, right? Or who knows what emotions when we know what God requires of us as parents and them as children or grandchildren, young adults, when our affection for them 
drives us to passivity with them, we're out of line and choosing wrong and making foolish and potentially dangerous and devastating decisions, just like the ones that David made with his sons. When we're willing to violate God's law in favor of people we love, indulging and supporting unbiblical, harmful desires, those people and those desires become idols. Let's say my son really wants to live or be impressed with lifestyle X, Y, or Z that's out of line with God's revealed will. Do I stand fast and strong on the unchanging ground of God's word, no matter how he responds? Or do I step weak and sliding and unsure onto the sand and let the culture eat away at his foundation and mine by passively sweeping it under the rug, supporting it, even celebrating what he's doing, acting as if it's somehow cute or funny or gonna just all work out okay if I turn a blind eye and let boys be boys. As king, David was responsible for enforcing divine justice in the land, for keeping God's law with him, reading in it all the days of his life, learning to fear the Lord by keeping all the words of the law and doing them. Deuteronomy 17, 18. And that law instructed David to put Absalom to death for murder. Absalom forfeited his right to life and even refuge by plotting the death of his brother. He didn't kill Amnon in the heat of the moment, like the woman's bogus son, or in any kind of self-defense. But David could not enforce that law on his own son. So he let Absalom stay in asylum in the pagan kingdom of his grandfather rather than bring him home to Israel under a death sentence. Let's get down point one here as be wary of anything that feeds your emotions in decision-making. Be wary of anything that feeds your emotions in decision-making. Because David kept God's laws before him and he would have enforced those laws on anyone else. But he loved his son too much to serve the justice on his life that God required of him as king. And that's natural and understandable, but he needed to make that call and move forward and trust. As one of the commentaries put it, the feelings of the father triumphed over the duties of the king. And we too can be torn between our natural affections and emotions and our royal duty as servants of the king. We're never going to be called on to enforce some kind of a death sentence on our kids because of their sin, I trust, but we are called to correct them and direct them as long as they're in our homes or somehow dependent on us and to continue strong with them as we never give up pointing them to Christ or coming alongside them, working to strengthen their walk with Christ, being an example to them as aggressively as they'll let us and as long as we get to live. 
God always knows best because Absalom lived, 20,000 men are gonna die. David is gonna suffer radically. Absalom goes on to become a rapist himself whose victims include his father's wives. So all this, by God's law, demand his death. So four times over. David should have taken strong and swift action with both of his sons, not let his own guilt or his own love or whatever other conflicting emotions were tearing at him, paralyzing him, and keeping him from making the decisions that God had called him to make. The whole purpose of the wise woman of Tekoa show is to ask the king in verse 13, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? That's the woman's thesis. David had just pardoned her hypothetical son, right? And he'd, he'd committed that and spoken it out loud. So not doing the same for the crown prince Absalom was inconsistent by her logic and not in the best interest of God's people who needed their crown prince restored to the royal fold. If David was gonna let Absalom live and be Israel's next king, then Absalom needed to be influenced by God's people and God's law and prepare for that transition of power. Furthermore, the Lord had showed incredible mercy to David, letting him live and salvaging his kingdom after what he did with Uriah. The Lord had showed mercy to the first murder, Cain. So the wise woman slash Joab wants David to act like God and show mercy to Absalom too in this special case and for the good of the nation. And the show, the presentation, opens David's eyes. He suddenly feels justified in finally, after all these years, returning Absalom for the good of the nation. But maybe the strongest motivator in bringing Absalom back was David's own desire to let Absalom slide. Remember verse one of our chapter told us that David's thoughts were with his son Absalom, not with Amnon, not with Tamar, but with Absalom. And Joab, the courtier and politician, made it his business to know the desires of the king. And he wasn't above manipulating those desires to his own advantage, softening David up with this story from a poor widow in distress and exploiting David's weak spot with his son Absalom. And David swallowed that agenda of Joab because it fed his own desire to have his favorite son back home. And that desire inclined him to appreciate the woman's showmanship and her spin that the nation favored Prince Absalom so much she feared that David's continued banishment of him might lead to insurrection in the nation. So she asked that her concern for the nation excuse her boldness to get away with calling out the king. She makes sure to call Absalom his banished one, feeding his guilt and feeding his longing. Chapter 13 ended last week. The spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom 
because he was comforted about Amnon. Um, he'd come to terms with the loss of Amnon because Amnon was dead. So he longed for Absalom. So Joab in part wanted, wanted to cause David to justify doing what his own heart had been urging him to do now for years. But Joab also wanted to get back in David's good graces himself. And he was willing to take this huge gamble to ingratiate himself. He thought David would forgive and forget blowing his fuse and murdering Abner in light of this elaborate push to get David, his son, back. When David finally decided and made that call to have Joab bring back the young man Absalom in verse 21, can you see that phrase in verse 21, bring back the young man Absalom? That term young man there, it's like he's saying, go get that little guy. Go get that fella. It's, that term is for a youth or a kid. But Absalom was not a kid. We'll see this again in chapter 18 when uh, the king is going to order his soldiers, deal gently for my sake with the young man. Same term again, that precious boy, Absalom. David should have judged Absalom as a man, as he was. And we moms of young men, we need to watch out for that too, right? I have to, I have to purpose, and, and it's, it's hard to view and to treat my 24-year-old son as a man, as he is. So I, I try to never even refer to him as a kid or a boy or by any of the baby names I might have used in the past. Our young men need to be independent, driving toward God themselves, preparing to be husbands and fathers, leaders, leaders of their families, Lord willing, if they're not already, right? Well, this bizarre scenario with the wise woman shifted David's thinking and whether it was right or wrong, he finally decided that reconciliation with his son was in the best interest of the nation and consistent with God's precedent of mercy. But we have to be so careful when other people find reasons for us to do what we so badly want to do ourselves. God can absolutely speak to us through godly people who help us see his will more objectively but we can't open our minds to what other people are saying when it contradicts what God has already said. Think about some of the emotional decisions that we women have to make um, that have such lasting consequences. Think about, is it right or, or wrong for a woman to quit her job uh, in order to stay home with her kids? Her very heart's desire is to do that and to stay home with those kids. But let's say her husband is asking her to keep working and to trust him. But she feels like and her friends are saying that her kids are going to suffer and she's not in God's will if she doesn't figure out a way to make that happen and get herself home. Which voice does she listen to there and, and why? The ones that feed her own desire? or the ones that scripture has already told her to listen to. Whatever her decision, 
she has to be wary of those voices that are telling her to go with her own desires because she's got that anxiety about her kids and she so desires to quit her job. Does a woman stay in a marriage when people are telling her she should just escape and she's tried hard enough and that's exactly what she so desperately wants to do herself? People in her family are saying she deserves more. Does she stay in her church and serve in that church? Does she stay driving hard and fully committed to that ministry that she's already committed herself to when she just isn't feeling up to it and she has too much on her plate and lots of reasons to bail out and other people are telling her it's okay, cut herself some slack? Well, point two, almost the same as point two last week, is align your desires with God's. And maybe add, in our context, it's in decision-making, obviously in all things. But from our text, align your desires with God's in decision-making is the particular context here. It's great how God keeps driving home these same points with us. And we're not kings, but we're God's servants too. And we have emotionally fraught decisions to make that can have lifelong and even eternal impacts. And we're all too susceptible to suggestion, just like David was with Joab and the wise woman. It doesn't take a lot to stir up our passions and our desires, especially the selfish ones, or maybe the ones involving our kids. To make good decisions in an emotional situation. And notice that distinction that we do need to make those decisions and act on them. Indecision, like David's with his sons, benefits no one. We have to stand on God himself and his word that does not shift or change, unlike our ever fluctuating emotions. One article talked about keeping a canon mind instead of an open mind, because we should be closed to any idea or any voice that's not 100% in alignment, in alignment with the canon, which is God's revealed word, the 66 books of scripture. So that's letter A, align your desires with God's word. Align your desires with God's word. And we have the incredible ability to ask God directly in prayer to help us, to shape us, to renew our emotions. So B, align your desires through prayer. Ask God to do it, knowing he hears. He renews our minds and emotions. And C, we do have people in our lives who can help us see God's will more objectively, especially when it doesn't feel good. I know you all have someone in your small group that you can turn to for godly counsel who's not gonna just feed your emotions like Joab, who doesn't just tell you what you necessarily want to hear. So see, align your desires with biblical counsel. Align your desires with biblical counsel. Proverbs 189.1 tells us when we isolate ourselves, we seek our own desire. We break out against all sound judgment. And finally, the most subjective of the four, we have the mind-blowing gift of God's spirit to guide us, to direct us. So D, align your desires 
with the Spirit's internal direction and prompting that comes through God's word and prayer and godly counsel more often than not. And it's never going to contradict what God's already said, so we can't interpret it subjectively that way. Instead of being overwhelmed by our fleshly emotions that surge all over the place, we can confess and fight the selfish and destructive and paralyzing ones. Elizabeth Elliot, the beautiful teacher and author who just went to glory a few years back, I bet some of you have read her books or maybe even heard her speak. She wrote, do not try to fortify yourself against emotions. Recognize them, name them if that helps, and then lay them open before the Lord for his training of your responses. The discipline of emotions is the training of responses. We can't master our feelings, but we can master our consent to them or our rejection of them. We know God's truth is unchanging. We know he cannot lie. We know he is good. So it doesn't really matter how we feel about his commands. Proverbs 28, 26, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. God can train us to respond rightly to fear, to panic, to feelings of discontent, inadequacy, or to our hormone, caffeine, illness, or sleep-deprived wild swings. I'm sure I'm talking to myself and not to you. When I, was, when I was younger, I used to feel hangry a lot, right? Hangry? When we acknowledge, I'm afraid, I'm freaking out for no particular reason here, and respond with A through D above uh, or in the moment by doing whatever we can, trying not to speak, uh, throwing out whatever prayer we can. God, help me. Working up a sweat, eating something, taking a nap, whatever we can do before getting back to A through D. God trains our responses. And we certainly don't want to make any decisions in obedience to those emotions. As we delight ourselves in the Lord, Psalm 37.4, our regenerated hearts desire the right things more and more. And God grants those right desires that are for our ultimate best and pleasing to him and according to his will. We need the grace to put the displeasing emotions aside, to take him at his word and act accordingly, not waiting to feel led not looking at our past experiences or other people's experiences, whether all the feels are there or not. When we act in agreement with what God says and trust, our feelings even usually catch up. But even when they don't, trust and obey. I don't know what you all should do about your grief, about your anger, about your fear, or about your love. But I'm saying that all of us, reconciled to God through Christ, have the tools to find out, and that God can work any and all 
of those emotions around for good and even for reconciliation with people, especially those on the same page with us in the family of God. Whether David was right or wrong in choosing to move toward reconciliation with Absalom in this particular case, God is certainly pro-reconciliation. God exercises patience towards sinners, bearing with us and waiting to be gracious. The sinner in David's time had sacrifice to atone for sin, and we have the ultimate sacrifice in Christ already paid to absorb all our sin. God's not willing. He doesn't desire that any should perish, and so has provided that way of escape for any willing to cling to it in order to reconcile with a holy God through the holiness of Christ. So when David decided to go for reconciliation with his son, he should have gone all the way without holding back, without reservation, forgiven from his heart, his whole person in love, keeping no record of wrong, laying down his expectations, pursuing that relationship with his son and demonstrating his commitment to it as aggressively as he could. Let's get down point three and then we'll look at the end of our text. Point three is go all the way to restore relationships. Go all the way to restore relationships. Once you've made that decision to do it, God laid everything down so that we could make peace with him. He emptied himself, took the form of a servant, humbled himself to death on the cross, and tells us as his followers, if possible, as far as it depends on us, live peaceably with all men. Romans 12:18. Let's look at where David's peacemaking and reconciliation fell short at the end of our chapter. In verse 33, Joab went to the king and told him Absalom's ultimatum, and the king summoned Absalom. So Absalom came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. The end of chapter 14. So David fetched Absalom home two years ago, right? But he never in all that time received Absalom openly with joy. He was not the father of the lost son in the parable of Luke 15, who ran and embraced and kissed the prodigal son, put the best robe on on him and rings on his fingers and shoes and killed the fattened calf and called for celebration because this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. David was not Joseph who said to the brothers who sold him into slavery, you shall be near me. I will provide for you and fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. Absalom lived apart, a word that has to do with going roundabout, sort of in a circle. He went roundabout. He gave a wide berth to, he skirted around his father's presence, his father's 
face or favor for two years after returning home. David was sending a message through internal exile, apart from the royal household, that Absalom had lost his claim to the throne and his claim to his father's favor. In the course of those two years, David probably expected to hear about Absalom's repentance and turning to God. And Absalom probably expected every day a summons into his father's presence and a return to the favor that he felt entitled to. But neither man ever apologized or asked for forgiveness. And the two certainly never dialogued about their issues or reaffirmed their love for each other. Expectations of others get us in a lot of trouble, don't they? Waiting around for someone else to act, someone else to initiate. It seems ridiculous that division remained between Absalom and David for two more years, but how many of us haven't done all we could to eliminate division and strain, sometimes in our own households or God's household with other believers, keeping them at arm's length too, prolonging reconciliation for way longer than that, but even a day is too long, isn't it? Have you ever rationalized like me He's the one who owes me an apology. The first move is his. Or when she gets serious about this relationship, I'm here. I'll just wait her out. Or even, you know, it's really not even a big deal. It'll just resolve itself if I just ignore it and give it time. Well, these rationalizations for passively failing to forgive from our hearts and working to resolve interpersonal offenses cause unforgiveness to fester. Pastor Mike has called this kind of thing, keeping people in social prison. David was concerned about the optics before his people of seeming to be too lenient with his son, forgiving him too easily. And he also wanted Absalom to repent. So he allowed those kinds of reservations and optics and expectations to hold him back from fully and openly embracing this son that he longed for. And the result was that Absalom's bitterness and frustration simmered for years until it boiled over and he forced a power play. Absalom had three years in exile outside the kingdom and two more inside the kingdom to undermine his father's authority from without and from within, all fueled by his sense of righteous indignation and anger. How could my own dad snub me when everyone else loves me? He just doesn't get it. He felt entitled to more and he got dangerous. In verse 29, Joab's double refusal to meet with him and help him force his way into David's presence was the last straw. One commentator noted that Joab's blazing field symbolized Absalom's anger and rage. Thought that was a great image. Clearly, separation and doing nothing led to no repentance, as David may have hoped. Absalom's bitterness only festered, and he did the opposite of repent. He committed a violent and serious crime. 
and he wanted to get Joab to deliver his ultimatum, accept me or kill me, and force his way into David's presence. So while it seems like at the end of our chapter, David treats Absalom with respect and acceptance on the surface, he sends for him, he kisses him, Absalom seems humble, bowing himself before David. The chapter ends so briefly and so formally, it seems that even then, there was no real attempt to bridge the gulf. Neither did anything to honestly break the deadlock. The king's kiss was only skin deep. We'll see Absalom use the same kinds of kisses uh, to steal away the hearts of Israel's fighters when we get to chapter 15 next week. First, because Absalom went unpunished, and then because reconciliation was prolonged and never complete, Absalom will nearly bring down David's kingdom, the kingdom of God. David held back on obedience because he longed for his son, but that son is gonna take up arms against his father and he won't hold back. Absalom will have no reservations about destroying David, his father, God's king. David held back on reconciliation because he feared public opinion, but that prolonged and then partial reconciliation is gonna fuel a lot more bitter suffering to come. What emotions cause us to hold back on obedience to God or hold back in pursuing reconciliation as aggressively as we might? We can't let any fears about our teenagers, our grown kids, our grandkids, even our own dignity or the optics before anyone check our decisive action. If we look like fools, so be it. If people fail us, they fail us. God won't, even when they do. Paul gave the Corinthian believers a great strategy for reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 6.11, Paul says, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak to you as children, widen your hearts also. How can we widen our hearts to reestablish a relationship, unrestrict our affections to fight like Paul for reconciliation, like David should have fought with his son? In the case of Absalom, David missed the mark on doing his duty, and then on reconciliation. May the result teach us never to weakly overlook someone's sin and then claim we're being like God, because we're not. And may it also teach us to never trust our emotions in isolation. The world says, go with your feelings and be real, be authentic. And the Bible says, go with your feelings and die. Titus 3.3 3, 3, 3 and Romans 8.13. Consider the emotions of a Korean-American man named Dong Yun Yoon, whose wife 
uh, two young daughters and mother-in-law were instantly killed when a Hornet fighter jet plowed into their family home down in San Diego just a couple years back. You might remember hearing that story not too long ago. Well, the pilot, there were mechanical failures and the pilot was able to eject himself in time and survive the crash. When a news van hit the scene, Mr. Yoon was obviously not home and someone gave the family's name before Mr. Yoon had even been notified. So imagine hearing that second or third or whatever hand. And the next day, the stunned and grieving man agreed to give a news conference. So he's talking to the reporters in front of his smashed house when suddenly overhead, a pair of Marine Corps fighter jets roared and drowned out his words. Uh, it seemed like it was just salting this gaping wound. No one would have blamed that man for raging against the military or anything else at that point, right? But the first thing he did when he could be heard again was to request support for the pilot and asking everyone to please pray for him not to suffer from this accident. I know he is one of the treasures for our country. I don't blame him. I don't have any hard feelings. I know he did everything he could. That seems unreal enough, but remember, your two, your two little daughters are dead. Your husband's dead. His other concern was for how his father-in-law, on his way in from South Korea, was gonna take the news. He said, I don't know how he'll ever forgive me for not protecting the family. As he finished the conference, he said over the jets still, I know there are many people who have experienced more terrible things. Please tell me how to do it because I don't know what to do. But Mr. Yoon showed everybody exactly what to do, didn't he? And how to put grace on display amidst unimaginable emotion. He didn't hold on to his pain and let it control his decisions, which would have been far more natural and understandable. So we can only imagine the healing work God did with that tool of grace that this man chose instead in his own life, in his community, in the life of that pilot, his father-in-law, and here in our lives through his example today. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that we have your word to guide us and direct us, that we have each other um, to be built up and to help each other see your, your will and the truth of your word more objectively. Help us all, God. You've, you've made us, you've created us as women with unique uh, and ever-fluctuating emotions. So help us, God, strengthen us to be stronger than we feel, to be kinder than we feel than we feel, to be more courageous than we feel. Um, God, give us the kind of love that's a love without weakness. And use all these women, Lord, to strengthen each other in their groups today. Give us uh, effective conversations that glorify you. Um, and please uh, guard us and take us all safely back home. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much. You're dismissed. <laughs>